something to teach us, uh, even if we are no longer young and small. Let's pray together. Lord, as your word is read, as we hear it spoken, we ask that you would move. That you would move in a way that let us believe that you are more mighty than Goliath. That with you, when we are on your side, victory for us is assured. And that can give us great courage, even in the face of terrible odds. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, you guys know the setting. David has been anointed as king. Uh, David has been playing the lyre for Saul to keep him calm in the midst of some of his madness, uh, an evil spirit that's tormenting him, Scripture says. And uh, so David has been doing that with Saul. He's been going back and forth uh, to his dad as well. And his dad sends him to battle. He knows that his three oldest sons are there at battle with Israel against the Philistines. They're on one side of the valley and the Philistines are on the other side. And every day Goliath comes out and he taunts the people of Israel and he defies the Lord. When David comes, he says, what will happen to the one who defeats Goliath? And they say that it'll be good. And David's oldest brother says, David, what, what are you doing? Why are you here? Did you come just to watch the battle? And David has a reason. His dad sent him with some grain and some other food for the troops and especially for his brothers. But his brother doesn't really want him there. Probably because his brother is a bit ashamed that they are cowering in fear every day as Goliath stomps out and proclaims his victory over Israel. So we'll pick up in... Um, Verse 31 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go in against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth, and if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God." David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. That sounds a little bit differently than when you hear it at church, May the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the river and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The troops of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram as far as Gath and Ekron. The Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire who's the, whose son the stripling is. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of, Philistine, of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of, his, of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the part where I'm supposed to tell you that you can do anything. This is the part where we think about all the times we hear in sports stories and otherwise, David versus Goliath, that the little guy can beat the big guy. This is the part where we recognize that we love this story. We love the underdog, the one that's overmatched and undersized, the one who everyone expects to lose, who we think that they're foolish to be even brazen enough to step on the court or into the ring or in the competition at all. But to tell it as an underdog story is to tell it from the perspective of all who are faithless in the story. David never thinks he's an underdog. This isn't an underdog story. It's about having eyes to see what matters if you want the victory. Goliath has his helmet and he has his shin guards and his breastplate and his shield and his shield bearer. He's got his spear and his javelin and his sword. And all of this is very, very heavy. The scripture emphasizes over and over again how much this stuff weighs. So we know how strong Goliath is. He's got his height and he's got his size and he's got his bravado to step out into the valley day after day and to holler across the way and say, come and fight me one-on-one, on one, 
let's settle this like men. You may remember that Israel has someone who's got these things too. Saul's got the height, and he's got the armor. He even tries to give it to David, the same sorts of things, the chain of mail and the bronze helmet. Saul's got the strength. When people see him, they say, that one can lead us in battle. But David doesn't need the height. And he doesn't need the armor, for David has the Lord. When Goliath looks at David as he comes out to the battlefield, to the line of battle, he sees David coming with sticks, and he's insulted. But David's not coming with sticks. He's coming with the Lord. The Philistines have their hero. This man who's tall and courageous, strong and intimidating, who's ready to fight. And the Israelites have Saul, the one who hides among the baggage when it's time for him to step out to lead. The Israelites have soldiers who cower and shake in fear and move away every time Goliath comes out to taunt them. But they've also got David, the one in this story who leaves the baggage behind and goes to the battle. Saul, Saul loses all of his father's donkeys at the very beginning of the story. But David won't give up even one sheep to a lion or a bear. This isn't because of David's size or strength, but because David knows the Lord. This isn't an underdog story. This is a story of faith. You may remember at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we talked about the ark, how Israel was losing and they wanted to win. So they went and they got the ark and they brought it to battle against the Philistines and they lost. They thought the ark would be this magical tool that would put God on their side that might help them win the battle. Here we see a man not who needs an ark or who needs any specialized weapons for warfare. He has the Lord. Or maybe to say it more directly, the Lord has him. It's not that the Lord is on David's side, but that David has found himself to be on the Lord's side. And the Lord will win the battle. Goliath has his sword and his spear and his javelin. He's insulted that David comes with sticks. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer read this passage, he, remi he was reminded of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says, Do you come at me with swords and clubs like I'm a bandit? Do you have to come in violence to take me? Do you think that I'm going to act in violence in return? About it, he says, The enemy and the world must necessarily disdain and insult and curse the defenseless warrior. They do not comprehend him. Instead, they consider him crazy or cocky, not understanding that it's David's proper humility toward God and God's word that makes him defenseless. You see, if you were Jesse, if you were David's dad, you would tell David that he's crazy, that he's acting brashly and brazenly, that he's confused courage for foolhardiness. You don't go out against, into battle against that sort of person with nothing but your sling and five stones and your shepherd's staff. You just don't do it. So we think that it's, that it's a problem with David's courage, that he's overly courageous. But the truth is that David is deeply humble. David recognizes that he can't do it, but that the Lord can. 
and that the Lord can do it with exactly the gifts the Lord has been cultivating in him over time. We often think that missiles and bombs and drones and guns and destroyers and battleships and fighter jets will secure our victory. All of those things, however powerful they are, are nothing in comparison with the Lord. God's might exceeds the power of the weapons of war. This isn't bravado or or foolhardiness. It's faith. And not faith abstractly. Oh, I believe that God exists and he wants to save me. But faith in the Most High God who will act for us and for his people. The Lord of hosts, the the God of the armies of Israel, whom Goliath has defied, will be defied no more. Everyone else is terrified. They were much afraid. They fled Goliath. But David's courage is rooted in the Lord. Goliath is the enemy. The enemy of the Lord and the Lord's people. And we know the enemy of the Lord as well. He might not look like a nine-foot man ready for battle. Sometimes he's quite sneaky as he comes upon us. We have various responses we can make to the enemy, to evil. We can respond in fear. We can cower behind everyone else and stay up out of the battle because we think that we're insufficient. We think that our strength and our weapons and whatever it is we have is not enough to defeat that, and so we stay out of it altogether. Ultimately, this sort of fear is a lack of faith. But it's not just fear, there's also complacency. That where we are right now is good enough. This was an easy option for David. David could have gone back home. That's exactly what his brothers wanted him to do anyway. His dad would have been happy to have him keeping the sheep. No one would have thought twice about this boy going back home to his father. He was young and his dad needed him. He could have kept everyone happy by doing that or at least as happy as they could be as a giant walked out into the valley and challenged them to battle. You see, complacency is a failure to recognize that the enemy is in our midst. That as long as Goliath stays... It's it's an effort to say that as long as Goliath stays down in the valley, he's not killing any of us. So let him mock us and our God. At least none of us has to fight him. He can just stay down there and torment us, but... We can deal with that. At least we're not dead. There's a sense that if we can just find equilibrium, that if we just don't rock the boat, everything will be all right, even if it means that more can't come on board. David wanted more than complacency and equilibrium. He wanted victory in the Lord. He wanted to destroy the evil in their midst. He insisted on letting God use him for God's own glory. It wasn't for himself. It was for Israel. And it was for the Lord. David didn't have to do this except for his faith. Sometimes maintaining an even keel means that we neglect those who are terrified around us. It means that we go back to the comfort of our life as it exists and we forget that there are people who are fighting a very difficult battle every day. It means that we keep the ones who are with us happy at the expense of letting God use us for greater things that others might know the victory of the Lord 
as well. The last thing that we can do is to embrace jealousy. We can, rather than celebrate the victory that the Lord has prepared and offered to us, we can be mad that it wasn't us that won the victory. David's brothers can't celebrate David's courage and faith. They can't celebrate the leader that he's becoming on behalf of Israel because they're too worried about how he's always getting the attention and the glory and none of it is coming for them. So we can cower in fear of the enemy thinking that we don't have what we need to win. Or we can cower in fear of those who are supposed to be on our team because they're worried about how our faithful actions might offer judgment on their inaction. We can settle in and go back to our homes and our everyday lives and pretend like there's no enemy around the corner or in the valley. We have the privilege needed to just check out and say, it's not my circus and not my monkeys. But God calls us to something different. Not to the idolatry of the tools of violence and protection, but into the fullness of faith where God becomes our full armor. Where we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Where we put on the belt of truth. And when our gifts get matched with God's power, God can do immeasurably and incomparably more. It shouldn't be surprising to us that Saul doesn't get it. That he can't even recognize David in the midst of it all. David's been playing the harp for him, you may remember. David went to see him and he offered him his army. But when David goes out on that field, Saul can't recognize David anymore. He thinks David is just a boy. And this young man is going out for victory. By any obvious standard, what David does is foolish. He's too weak. He's too ill-protected. He's too ill-trained to battle a giant man who's been practicing and training for battle for his whole life. David's a youth, and Goliath has been training for battle since he was a youth. But the Lord is strong in our weakness. The Lord's foolishness is beyond our wisdom. If we've been paying attention and acting in faith, he's been showing us his strength all along. This is what David finds as he chases after the lions and the bears. He finds that the Lord's enemy is his enemy. And that in Christ, in the Lord, David is more than a conqueror. This is what is promised to us as well. We might think that we're too small. As a church or as individuals, that we have too few resources to combat evil and injustice and oppression in our world. But who are we, just a few folks in Brewer, Mississippi, to make any difference? But Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Paul tells us that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, not Goliath or anything much more powerful than Goliath, can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all of creation... If that's so, then we've got work to do. Work to abide in God, work to labor with God, empowered by God to destroy every evil and to live and participate in the new creation which is coming and indeed is already here. This looks like foolishness to the world, but in God it looks like wisdom. I'm going to close by reading the end of 1 Corinthians 1. 
Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. The message of the cross, that is the Messiah crucified, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want an underdog story. We want your story. A story in which we can boast because you have included us in the foolishness of the gospel. That just as it is silly for a boy to go out against a giant with a sling and some stones... It is foolish for us to think that we can find life from a man on a cross. It's foolish for us to think that your glory and power and strength is exposed nowhere more clearly than the death of your son Jesus. It's foolishness to think that through us you might change the world. Give us a faith, Lord God, that we might believe these things and abide in them as we seek your face and know your victory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.